All right. Since we're actually all here, we have an in-person service on a Sunday night, which is a good thing. We can actually advance some of the things that we did this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the book of Jude. Since we did three weeks to prepare for the introduction, we didn't really get to the introduction. So tonight we'll, we'll actually try to finish the introduction so that next week we can actually get into the book. So that's what we're going to do. So the book of Jude, let's remind ourselves of three very important concepts that we laid as the foundation for the book, three important concepts. Those concepts were the faith, right? What else? Invasion, insurgency, all right? The faith, what's significant about that? The faith has to be defined, right? Because if the faith is not defined, what happens? Well, then any definition of the faith, anybody's idea of the faith, you don't know if that's true or if that's not true, right? How do you test something without a definition? Correct? Okay. So we have to have a definition. Now, once we have the definition of the faith, we went through church history. And a roundabout way, what's the first really establishment of definitions? Really comes from the church, right? We have the Creed, we have the Council of Nicaea, the, uh, the Nicene, and we, we go through all of that, okay? We, remember, we went through all of that. Then there's kind of, a, uh, kind of a, a shift, which moves to the Bible, right? And then kind of a bad thing happens. It kind of goes from the church, supposed to go to the Bible, to the individual. The only way to fight that is we have to, one, remember the definitions of the past, and two, we have to have... Hermeneutics, 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 because that helps us handle the Bible in a correct way. And what, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, what do you have to leave out? We didn't talk about this this morning. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, what has to be left out? Us. We've got to be left out of it, right? The Bible is outside of us, Yes. Right? That's why we here, of course, I clearly reject uh, uh, any charismatic theology, obviously, but that's why we believe God gave us his, wor- his word in a written form because it's outside of us. If I'm trying to hear God speak to me some internal way, that just turns into crazy chaos, right? Because I'm trying to, is it me? Is that, what, is that what I want? Is that what God wants? You can never decipher anything that way. So this is outside of me. So I don't go put myself in it. I try to figure out what it says by the words that are used and then interpret that using basic rules of interpretation. Yes? Okay. So that's the, that's the definition of the faith. And then what happens? Once the faith is clearly defined, then what happens? Immediately invasions occur. And, who, and where do I put the focus on the ev- invasion? Us. We invade. Because we spend a lot of time outside, in a sense, of the church, outside of God's word, and we're being influenced by a million different things, bombarding our thinking, our ideas, and we have our own sinful desires, right? Well, first, think of it this way. The reason we invade Christianity is because we have first been invaded. We're all born with a sinful nature, right? We're all born with a sinful nature. I've always said it before, if I, if I brought in the Satanic Bible, and I was to go to the beginning of the Satanic Bible written by Anton LaVey in 1960, right? 1968. Remember, Satanism, everybody thinks Satanism is the worship of the devil. What is Satanism the worship of? Self, right? Satan is just a symbol for, a, Satanism is a philosophy, right? So Satanism is about the worship of self. So if you go through the nine statements that's required to be basically a member of the church of Satan, there are all these statements that we would all, if we were honest, we'd be like, that kind of sounds a little bit like me because that's what we are natural. Remember, Anton LaVey's whole issue with Christianity is why try to worship a God that goes against yourself when you know that's not what you want. So worship you, right? What's the most important holiday to a Satanist? Their birthday, because you're worshiping yourself. It's self, 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 right? That, so the invasion already happened. We're born invaded with a sinful nature. Now you take that sinful nature, then you're in a world with all kinds of crazy ideas, and that all constantly bombards us, yes? Then we come into Christianity, and what do we bring with us? All of that. And then what do we have a tendency to do? Start twisting and making the Bible say what we want, making Christianity agree with us. 
And the minute we do that, what have we done? We've thrown out the faith. And we've replaced it with our faith. There's the invasion. Then how does that become an insurgency? Well, once we invade, then we begin to fight against the definition. And that's why, what's, what's the greatest enemy to the church? The church. <laughs> the greatest enemy to the church is the church. I'm the greatest enemy to the church and you're the greatest enemy to the church. Right? Most churches split not because of some liberal policy in the world. They split because Christians can't get along with each other. Right? That's usually the, the downfall of, of, of the church. So we talked about all of that. Now, we, because we have this threat, we need what? A survival manual. Right? And one of the books that sometimes, in fact, this, this commentary here, describes the book of Jude as a survival manual. So we're going to study the book of Jude to see what survival tips that is offered in the book of Jude. So Bible dictionaries, everyone. This is all Bible dictionary night. So it should be fun and easy. And yeah, some of you are probably like, it's not, that doesn't sound fun. It sounds like school. Well, that's kind of what church is, right? As we're, we're, we come here to learn. Do you need a Bible dictionary there, Bobby? Do you need one? We probably stole yours. There's one right here. Oh, we got one. They're all over the place, so we made sure that we had plenty of them. All right. Everybody, Bible dictionary. Here's what we're going to do, just so that you know, for people who have never done this before. We're going we're gonna to do an introduction using the Bible dictionary, but we'll go through it, and then I'll stop, add, and who's calling me? That would be our daughter. So should I just say, hey, Becca, we're in church? Okay. could you text her and tell her that we're a church okay all right so then after that after that interruption so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the dictionary and then we'll stop add and what we we will see how they introduce the book and see whether we agree or disagree and i'll ask you all kinds of questions but it'll be open book because you have the dictionary in front of you sound good and then we'll look at their outline and what will what will we probably do once we see their outline Probably disagree with it, right? Probably disagree with it, okay? Because I, 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 I did two outlines on the book, and I've decided that my first outline is incorrect, so we're going to do, do it a second way. We may even come up with a third outline, so just be ready. Everybody, so everybody on the same page? All right, now if nobody else calls me on my iPad. Okay, here we go. All right, iPads are great for your notes, but people can call you on it. All right, here we go. Uh, page 715 of the Bible Dictionary. We read the first paragraph this morning, did we not? Or I think we almost finished it. Here we go. The Jude, epistle of the last of the general letters of the New Testament and the next to the last book of the Bible. Now, first up, first thing to start is that Jude is what? If you want to just put something simple in your note, it's a letter. It's a letter. It's a letter. It's a letter. Remember, um, constantly in the New Testament, most of the New Testament, are letters written to what? Churches. And almost in every case, the letters are written to do what? Combat a problem. Fix a problem. Warn them about a problem. Rebuke them of a problem. Demonstrating that the church from its very beginning has had problems. Why has the church from its very beginning had problems? It's made up of people who have problems. And that problem is, we're all sinners. And we bring that right into Christianity. Okay, so it's a letter. Just remember that. It's a letter. Okay. Um, one of the last of the general letters of the New Testament. And next to the last book of the Bible, Jude, Jude is a brief but hard-hitting epistle written by a man who believed in not allowing negative influences to destroy the church. He is right. Think of it this way. It's a letter written to protect the church from negative influences. And you can, you can vary your notes any way you want. Any, however, be creative. You can, you can, sometimes when I see your guys' notes, they're better than what I preached. So however you want to word it, okay? So we got a basic idea. Jude is what? A letter written to do what? Protect the church from negative influences. 
Right? Now, you know what we do once we establish what it is every week when we study Jude, I'm going to start with the same thing. What is Jude? And everybody's going to say a letter written to protect the church from. There you go. See, every, and I'm going to say that every week. And then by the time, the only thing you're going to remember about Jude is that it's a letter written to protect the church from negative influences. But guess what? That will be great if you remember that. All right. What does Jude do to fight these negative influences? He unmasks false teaching with very blunt language and with vivid images while appealing to the faithful to do what? Remember the teaching of the apostles. So Jude is a letter written to protect the church from negative influences. He protects the church by doing two things. Number one, exposing the false teachers. Number two, reminding everyone to remember something. Remember what we talked about? What do we have to do? Remember the definitions of the past. What is he going to remind them of? The teaching of the apostles. All right, so far so good. Any questions there? Pretty straightforward. What do they give us next? They give us the structure, which is interesting because I would think they would go with authorship and date, but they go with the structure next. Right? The structure of the epistle. Let's stop right here. Practical question. Everybody got thinking caps on? Why is it important to understand the structure of a book in the New Testament or a letter in the New Testament? What do you think? Okay, well, that's more about the background of it. This is actually how the book is structured. Sometimes the structure will demonstrate what is being emphasized, right? Sometimes that structure may demonstrate a natural outline, right? Sometimes it may give you interpretive clues, or at least it may give you, think of it this way, it may give you kind of a skeleton so that you can kind of see the structure, then then you can kind of, in a sense, put the flesh on the book so it makes more sense. Sometimes the structure is super important. Sometimes the structure isn't, but let's see what they have to say in regards to the structure, okay? A lot of times when people start, again, a lot of times when people say something about a verse and a book, and you start saying, okay, well, wait a minute. What is the book? What is the structure of the book? And if they don't know anything about it, in many cases, then they shouldn't be talking about what the book means, right? You got to know these kinds of things, right? Does that make sense? What do they say about the structure of the book? Here we go. It starts with what? A salutation. What would be another word for a salutation? A greeting. It starts with a greeting. Everybody, if you have your Bible, Jude, or Jude, well, just Jude. Jude 1, okay. And what we should do we may have to do, we may do this next week. I may just walk us through a chapter summary. Uh, if, you, if you listen to the other, well, some of you have been in the church for long enough, you know. I always teach everyone how to do a chapter summary method of Bible study, right? Jude is a perfect book for the chapter summary method because it's only one chapter long. So you can use the chapter summary method to study the whole book. But all right, here we go. Verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you, peace and love be multiplied. Stop right there. That's a basic greeting and a basic salutation. Yes? What do we have in the greeting? What do we have in the salutation? We have the author. Who's the author? Jude. Who is Jude? Servant of Jesus? And brother of James. Look at that. You're, you guys are good. You can already start making your outline if you want. All right. So in the, salut- in the salutation, we have who the author is. It's Jude. And he's identified in two ways. A servant of Jesus and a brother of James. Now, immediately, what question should you ask yourself? Which James? Very good. I'm not going to tell you right now. All right. We'll see if the book tells us. All right. Or the uh, dictionary. What else does the salutation or greeting gives us? Who's it to? Who, is, who are the recipients of said letter? Sanctified, preserved, and called. Right? Is that the three descriptions of the recipients? Sanctified, preserved, and called. Sanctified, what does that mean? 
Those who have been set apart by God. Preserved. What does that mean? Kept. Third, called. Most likely the calling is referring to the effectual call. We've talked about this. But out of those three things, what should you take from it? That it's a letter written to whom? Believers. To believers. It's also, there's a, a something very encouraging about it. What's, what's encouraging here about how the, uh, the recipients are identified? Something super encouraging. Okay, he says they're sanctified by. Preserved is a very encouraging term, considering this is a book about all of the dangers facing the church. Now, what's the good thing about this? As Christians, what keeps us saved? Christ, not us. Okay, make it very clear. What keeps you saved is not you. Okay, what saved you? Christ. What keeps you saved? Christ, not you. We are not saved by works. We are not kept by work. We're not preserved by work. We are preserved preserved by the work of Christ, not our work. I should say we're not kept by our work. We're kept by his work. We're not preserved by our work. We're preserved by his work. And we're not saved by our work. We are saved by his work. That's encouraging because if there's all kinds of bad stuff coming in, the church is falling apart, everything's crazy, you don't know what to do, you know at least I am kept by Christ. That's a good, that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. All right? Anything else about the recipients? Called, right? Meaning God is the one who called them into faith, all right? Again, demonstrating that our salvation is a work of him. All right? Now, so there's the salutation or greeting. You could call it introduction if you want, right? Verses one through two, and it is followed by what? A warning. That what? What word is that? Licentiousness, right? What is licentiousness? What is licentiousness? Let's find a definition. Look it up. You use, you call a friend, use the internet, use whatever you want. Give me a definition of licentiousness. Okay, someone says lawless, lawlessness, if I can speak correctly. Okay. Lawlessness. What else? Come on. Who can find it first? I'm, I'm in the Bible dictionary. Okay. The dictionary says licentiousness. Okay. All right. Promiscuous and unprincipled in physical relations, right? Okay. All right. There's, there's that word. Well, uh, the... The Bible, I think, depending on the translation, they point to uh, verse 3 and 4. How does it read in verse 3 and 4 in the King James? says this, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, there's your invasion, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, right? Now, licentiousness, lasciviousness, what's, what's the definition of the word used in the King James? Lasciviousness in the King James. What's the definition of that word? Is it similar? Is it the same? Uh, you, can, you, can, you can look up the Greek if you want. Feel free. You can just look up an English definition. Is it similar to the other one? The reason I'm doing this is different translations use different words. If they use different words, is it a big deal or are they saying something completely different? These are the kinds of things we have to figure out. What do we have? I know you're like, do you do the work? What is it? Okay, so in both cases, the term re- references some type of sexual immorality. All right? So, how is that used then? Let's go back to it. 
What has happened here to the church? Verse 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Now this is interesting. It's turning the grace of God into this. So that means it's using lasciviousness to illustrate something, right? If lasciviousness or licentiousness is something dealing with sexual immorality, meaning that you're not following the basic morality as basically handed down about that matter, then what are they trying to say here? That they've taken God's grace and turned it into what? License. Here's God's grace. Now I can do whatever I want. I don't have to follow any morality. I don't have to follow any rules. Does that make sense? Is everybody with me there? Right? So what has happened is some people have come into the church and they're changing or they're, they're doing this. They are corrupting the teaching on grace. So an invasion has occurred and an insurgency has begun. Grace, is grace a pretty common uh, concept in Christianity? They're going after that. Does that make sense? Right? Now, let's see what they have to say here. So we have the, what do we have first? Salutation, greeting. We broke that down, right? What do we have next? That he, uh, that he is followed by a warning that licentiousness has found its way into the church. Verses three and four. Now, please note, I don't like the way, I don't like the way the dictionary says that. It's not that licentiousness has come into the church. What has come into the church? Men have come in to corrupt the teaching on grace. See, they, the way the dictionary describes it as, is, as if the men came in and that they're involved in the sexual immorality. The, uh, the issue is they've taken God's grace and turned it into that. Does everybody, uh, everyone understand that? Does it, how does the NIV translate that verse? Verse 4. Okay, there you go. They changed the grace of God into license for immorality. Okay, I want everyone to see that. The dictionary almost kind of implies that he's going after licentiousness. He's going after that. No, he's going after what they've done to God's grace. Does that make sense? Does everybody understand that? Pervert the grace of God. So I want you to see what's happening. Here's this concept called grace... And they've done really bad things with it. Well, think of it this way. When we think of God's grace, we're all tempted to do what? We'll, 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 we'll throw, we'll throw, if teenagers would be willing to answer, I think they would be honest if they did this. If the parents decided, hey, guess what, guys? You're under a, uh, a 60-day period of complete grace. You can do whatever you want. Complete grace for 60 days. Okay, somebody's like, yeah, okay. They would immediately take that as what? License to do whatever they want. They may be burning down the school. Who knows? Who knows what they're doing, right? It'd be crazy. And you'd be like, no, what are you kids doing? I'm giving you grace. And yes, we're taking advantage of it. Right? Instead of being like, this is so great that my parents have demonstrated such love and such grace. I'm so respectful of that grace that, you know what, I'm going to even be, I'm going to serve them even more. Okay? Everyone laughs when we, because like, no teenager would do that. We don't do that. The adults don't do that to God. As bad as you think the kids are, you're worse. Okay, no, none of the parents said amen, okay? We're worse, just in a different way, right? We, we're, we're a little better at, at maybe saying things the right way, right? We may be a good way of, of dressing it up. But that's what they're doing. Someone has come in and basically say, hey, guys, we're under grace. Do whatever you want. 
And everybody's like, yeah, man, this is awesome. I love this church. It's the greatest thing I've ever heard. I can do whatever I want. And not only do whatever I want, you're completely okay. That's, that's what's happened, okay? The, the, the dictionary just almost like the way it's written just seems to kind of lead me like that this kind of sexual sin is in the church. It's, no, it's, they're using the sexual sin to describe what they've done to God's grace, right? They've turned grace into a license. So far, so good? Are we good with everything? All right, what does he do next? Such blasphemies will receive the judgment of God as did sinful Israel. Now, what's important there? I want you to write down this word because this is going to be important in my outline. Reminder. Going to remind them over and over. This idea of a reminder is going to play a big part in the way I outline it. All right? So if we break it down the way they've done so, we have a greeting, yes, salutation, and then we have a warning, yes, and then we have a reminder of what? God judging Israel. Would everybody agree that's kind of the way they're breaking it down? So far, so good? What does the dictionary gives us next? Rebellious angels... He's reminding them of rebellious. See all the reminders coming in here? In other words, hey guys, these people have come in and they're teaching you you can do whatever you want because of God's grace. Let me remind you something. What did God do to Israel and what did God do to rebellious angels? What's the answer for both? Judgment. And then what is he mentioned? Sodom and Gomorrah. You talk about two cities that uh, get lots of discussion. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And those are all reminders. Then what do they do? Verses 8 through 13. They note the outrage of the blasphemers exceeds that of Satan himself and is similar to the rebellions of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. What is that all doing? More reminders. More reminders. Anybody got a question there? These are reminders, 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 reminders. So far, so good. Their schemes are nothing new. Enoch of old prophesied their punishment. Christians need, need not be victimized by such deceivers. Their defense lies in what? Remembering the words of the apostles and by working for the salvation of those caught in such errors. And then, at the end, a famous benediction concludes the epistle. You can think of it this way. The way they break it down is this. The greeting, the warning, the reminder, the benediction, or the conclusion. That's the way they outline the book. Pretty simple? Now, so, so in a simple way, this book offers what as the survival manual to Christians facing all of these threats to the church? To remember. To remember. And what are we to remember? The definitions laid out in the Bible, the definitions laid out by the church, and to remember what God has done to judge false teaching in the past. To remember, to remember, to remember. So far, so good. Is that, is that, has everybody got that? Did we break that down halfway in a decent way? All right. I'll break it down differently, but you'll, you'll see. It's going to be it's somewhat similar. And now that moves us to where? What's next? Authorship and date. Stop right here. Authorship and date. Why is it important to know the author and the date of a book of the Bible? You have a historical context, and sometimes that historical context completely changes the entire meaning of the book. What's the best example of this in the entire Bible? Book of Hebrews. 
Everybody reads Hebrews, and there's all these serious warnings. And everybody's like, so does that mean you can lose your salvation? No, you can't lose your salvation. It means you may not be saved. And everybody goes back and forth, and everybody yells and runs around and screams and has theological arguments. And I just want to raise my hand whenever I'm in one of those classes and go, hey, guys, who was the book written to? The Jews. When was it written? About 67, 68 A.D. So that means in about two years, what's getting ready to happen? The entire system of Judaism is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And what is the writer of Hebrews? Some say it's Paul, whoever the writer of Hebrews is. What do they do? Hey, guys, you're not going to have a sacrifice. Hey, you're not going to have a way to have forgiveness of sins because everything's going to be gone. You're not going to have a priest. You're not going to have a temple. You're not going to have anything. But guess what is better? Christ, who is a better priest, sacrifice, etc., etc. It's warning the Jews to not turn from Christ because if they turn from Christ, there's nothing left. And, and it tells us that Christ is better than all of that and he's replaced all of that. It's not about telling me whether I can lose my salvation or not. It's speaking of losing their salvation in light of the fact that their system is going to be gone. It's not going to exist anymore. Does that make sense? All right. So knowing the date can completely change your entire understanding of a book, right? Especially if you know the history. So what are they going to tell us here? The author of the epistle introduces himself as, everybody's already got in their notes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There is no further uh, identification and the James mentioned is probably whom? The Lord's brother. Jude, therefore, would also be a brother of Jesus, right? Um, Although not an apostle, the emphasis on remembering the words which were spoken before by the apostles suggests that the epistle was composed sometime after the apostles had taught, thus favoring a date near the close of the first century. Conclude at, at somewhere close to the end of the first century, which would put us about where? Where would this put us? All right, 68. This seems to be going later than that. Well, at the end of the first century, what would be the end of the first century? Right. Yeah, in the 90s, right? So this would be around 90 AD. This would be real late. All right? Some says 65 to 80. All right? Anybody got a different date? If you got, you can use any source you have. Let me know if you get a different date. They put it at a late date here. Anybody got a different one? I see people looking at different things. Nobody? So it says 40 to 80. That's, that's a big guess. Okay. Somewhere between, yeah, yeah somewhere in 100 years, okay. 50 and 100. 40 to 140. Okay. All right. So what should we... Now, what do you do as a good Bible student when you find that nobody can agree and it's such a wide range of dates? What should you immediately do? Do not be dogmatic. Now, if it's late... What would be the theological significance? Let's say it was written around between 80 to 100, right? Late. What would be significant about this? Okay, I don't know if that would play into this. There's something else. Sarah Danzler better get this right. You better get this right. I'm putting all the pressure on you, all right? All right, let me think of, remind ourselves of something. Okay, very important concept. Some of you will understand this, some of you will not, but that's okay, I'm going to explain it. All right. Before we have a completed canon, who is responsible for giving authoritative teaching to the church? The apostles. They have apostolic authority. Agreed? Okay. Well, just, just stay with me. Apostolic authority. Yes? Okay, one of the big issues in the church is a, the issue of apostolic succession. Does everybody know what that means? Apostolic succession is the idea that, let's say, Bobby is an apostle, 
and Bobby gets, re- gets ready to die out, and that gets ready to wipe out all of the original apostles, that there's a succession, that their authority is handed down next in line. Then the church maintains apostolic authority. So who continues to define the truth? The church, because the church maintains apostolic authority through apostolic succession. Now, many, I mean, we're Protestants, we reject that idea. We reject that idea. Now, here's what's significant. If Jude is writing late, like say 90, 100, 110, 120, and he's basically telling everyone, remember what the apostles said, then he's not pointing to what? Apostolic succession, everyone. He's not pointing to that, right? He's not saying look to the new apostles. He's reminding them of what? The older apostles would have said. I mean, you get to 90 or 100, you're almost getting to the end of that whole apostolic period. And he's saying, remember. He doesn't even say, he doesn't even point to himself. The dictionary even states that, right? What does it say? Go back and read it. Yeah, remember the words spoken before of the apostles. And what does it even say about, he doesn't see himself, right? Although not an apostle, the emphasis on remembering the words which were spoken before by the apostles suggests that the epistle was composed sometimes after the apostles had taught, thus favoring a date near the close of the first century. That would be significant from a historical perspective. I'm not saying this proves Against apostolic succession, I think there's other things that would prove that. But I think it's just interesting that he's not like, hey, go look to the, find the new apostles. No, he's like, remember what they said. He doesn't even say, look to what I say. Which is kind of interesting, just from a historical perspective. All right? Does that make sense? So, just so that you know, we reject apostolic succession. Now, there are Christians today who still believe that they have apostolic power. Remember, I worked with someone when I was in the military who claimed to be an apostle, and I would always be like, you're out of your mind. Okay, you're crazy. Okay, how did you get in the military? You're crazy. You're not an apostle. Okay, and then he claimed he could heal people, and it was just nonsense craziness. And it was scary that he was in the United States military. Okay, but that's, that's a whole different story, all right? We don't believe there are any apostles. So we don't believe in apostolic succession. All right, does that make sense? This is significant from a historical standpoint. All right, oh, going as fast as I can. All right, what do we have happen next? All right, that that takes care of everything of the authorship and date. Now, historical setting. What is the historical setting? Here we go. The epistle of Jude has the character of a tract or brief essay written for a general Christian audience. The author sets out to write about, everybody look at verse 3 of Jude. What does he set out to write about? Someone said it? Common salvation. He set out to write about everyone's common salvation. If we're Christians, then we have one thing in common. Right? Always remember this. This is so important from a church perspective. People always forget this, but I'm going to give you something practical. The thing about churches is we don't always, we, sometimes people have this vision that the church, that everyone's going to be the same. The church is not there to create clones, right? We don't want that. Everyone's an individual. Everyone's different, right? And sometimes that difference can create disagreements and people get upset. Calm down if someone disagrees and they're not exactly like you. It's okay. I know you may not, it may bother you that they're not in the same bubble that you live in, but it's going to be okay. What do we have in common? Salvation. That's what we have in common, our salvation. What we have in common is our faith in Christ. I rarely have anything common with anybody in church. Right? People don't like what I like. It, it, it's, it's okay. You're all wrong, but it's okay. We don't have to be the same. What we have to care about is that we have a common salvation. That's what unites us. Not everyone's opinion on every little subject. You're going to be in a church. Sometimes people walk in a church and they want everyone to think the way they do. That's, you're, going to be, you're going to live in a life of disappointment. 
Not everyone's going to think the same way about, just name the issue. Are they going to think the same way about parenting as you? No. Are they going to think the same way about politics as you? No. Are they going to think the same way about anything? No. And that's okay. What matters is what do we have in common? Salvation. That's what we have in common. All right? It's okay to be different. It's okay. Don't, 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 don't lose your mind because people are, are, are drastically different than you. Okay? But that's what he set out to do. But something happened. He had to stop that about writing about the common salvation. He had to do something else. Look at the verse. He was going to write about the common salvation. And what happens? He had to stop to contend for the faith. Remember that definition? He's now got to contend for the definition because the definition is under attack. And where's the attack coming from? Inside the church. Inside the church. Right? Inside the church. The call is coming from inside the house, right? It, that's where the attack is coming from. It's inside the house. That's where the, the, the situation is coming. And he's got to contend for it. What else does it say? But the more pressing issue of false teaching launched him into a bitter attack on the ungodly. Their ungodliness took the form of denying the lordship of Jesus Christ and in the name of grace, justifying a life that included immorality of all sorts, uh, mercenary interests, uh, cheap talk, and utter worldliness. The false teachers attacked by Jude seem to have separated spiritual matters from behavior. Apparently, they taught that the world is evil, and therefore it makes little difference how one behaves. And it's going to mention someone. Who's mentioned here? The Nicolaitans, who are mentioned where? The book of Revelation, right? The false teachers deserved the just punishment of God. They refused to recognize the uh, implications of the incarnation, that if God cared enough to send his son into the world, then he certainly cares how people behave in it. Simply put, what was a good way to describe what was happening? What's a simple way to describe what was happening? That your faith had no bearing on your behavior. Your belief had no impact on your behavior. That's basically what they are teaching. That you can behave any way you want. Now, we all know that there's some problems with that, right? First, the Bible does constantly speak about our behavior. Yes? Now, we're not saved by it. Don't, want to, don't ever... That's where people get all confused. Some people will push against what the heresy was, and they run to almost a legalistic Christianity. That's, that, you cannot do that. We must always maintain grace. Will people abuse grace? Please write this down. Never let the abuse of a truth lead you to an error in defending the truth. Never let someone's abuse of a truth lead you to an error in defending the truth. We always have a tent, the church throughout history, we always go to extremes, right? Someone comes in and says, you have grace to do whatever you want. And then we're like, Wah! and then we run all the way to the other side of the church and like, you have no grace to do anything. And if you mess up twice, you're probably not saved and you're going to hell. That, no, calm down, everyone. Take a deep breath. Abuse of a doctrine should not lead me to come up with a false doctrine in order to argue against the attack. You maintain the true doctrine. What do we maintain? I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. I am not saved by what I do. I am saved because of an imputed righteousness. I, that my hope for salvation is not in my practical righteousness, but in an imputed righteousness. We have to maintain that like with every ounce of our being. So they come in and they're just like, your behavior doesn't matter. So what would be our response? Our behavior matters because God says it matters. We're still saved by grace. Number two, it is true that we can at least say this. If I was to come in here right now and I was to pull out a map and go, I found this ancient map 
and it says that there's a million dollars buried behind this church. And I've asked you if you believed that. And I just set the map down and walked away. If you believed that that map really says where a million dollars is buried behind this church, where am I going to find you in about three seconds after I walk away? You're going to be out there digging with your hands, right? I'm getting it first, right? And if I get it first, nobody else is getting it. Brothers and sisters will probably be fighting each other. No, I'm getting it. If you believed it. Now, if you didn't believe it, what would you do? Yeah, you just leave the map and go home. Just leave the map and go home. You wouldn't even care. You wouldn't even worry about it. So faith, if it's real, if there's any kind of sincerity to the faith, it will lead to some action. Is it always going to be perfect action? No, of course not, because we're sinners. But it's going to lead to some kind of action. For them to say that there's no connection is just fraudulent. At some point, you have to just realize, you don't really believe that. You don't really believe that. Come on, you don't really believe that. All right? Um, see, where did we stop? Okay, that, that finishes the historical setting. All right? Let's at least start the theological contribution. Let's at least start it. Oh, I want to finish this so bad. All right. Jude writes as a defender of the faith who is contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Please note, the faith once delivered unto the saints. Why is that significant? There's just one faith once delivered. There's not 50 different kinds of faiths being delivered all the time. It's one faith delivered. Does everybody understand that? What else does he go on to say here? The ungodly are not the heathen outside the church. They are the false teachers inside. It's not the people outside, it's the people inside. The church spends so much time pointing its finger at everyone outside the church. I don't really know why we do this. Let let me just, let's just just do a couple of things here quickly, all right? Let Let me just help everyone out. The people outside the church, right? Those who are not Christians, they don't claim to be a Christian. What should our expectations be of them? Nothing. There's no expectation. If we go out there and try to force them to be a Christian, does that fix anything? No. If we go out there and try to make rules to say, you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, does that accomplish anything? It creates bitterness, hatred towards Christianity, and it's just foolish because you're trying to make an unregenerate person live like a regenerate person. You can't make a dead person live, live like a live person. I know that just doesn't work, Right? I mean, we, if you don't believe me, we could all get in the car really quick, go down to the cemetery, dig up a body. Try to make it, try to make it act like it's alive. It's not going to work, right? It just, it'll just fall over, right? You can sit it up, it'll fall back over. You can lift up its hand, it's going to drop. You can try to make it talk. It, you can't make it work. Right? I know a graphic illustration, but you get the idea. It's not going to work. So we run into the world, and we sometimes as Christians are like, you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and you better do this, and we don't like that, and we want to cancel this, and we're going to censor you. And we're and, I mean, in some ways, Christians created cancel culture. We're going to make everyone act like us. Jesus didn't say, go into the world and make them act like us. He said, go into the world and do what? Teach. Present the gospel. Remember the Great Commission. Go into the world and teach. That's the first teaching. Baptize, bring them into the church. And then guess what the third thing is? Teaching them to obey. The teaching of obedience is after salvation, not before salvation. But what Christians want, we don't like the ugly world, so we want to change the ugly world for our own to make us feel better. Did Jesus tell the apostles, hey guys, you need to organize and you need to go in and you need to vote this way and you need to do this and you need to change this and you need to... He doesn't do that one time in the Bible. Not one time. Now, I think Jesus would understand that they were living in a very hostile world, yes? And he said, go preach. All right? We are so worried about the problems outside the church that we seem to never want to deal with the problems inside the church. 
The problems in Christianity is all of us. What does Peter say? Where does judgment begin? With us. We got to be more humble and look at us instead of telling everyone else what they're doing wrong. We got to look at us. Where's the problem in the church? And so, what does he say? I mean, I didn't write it. What is, what was, what is, read that again. The ungodly are not the heathen outside the church. They are the false teachers inside. Their association with the faith, however, does not mean that they live in the faith. The ungodly have not the spirit, whereas the faithful do. The ungodly remain in eternal darkness, but the saints have eternal life. Condemning his opponents in sharp imagery, Jude calls them raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The saints, on the other hand, must set their anchor in the teaching of the apostles and in the love of God. They must work to to retrieve from certain destruction those who have been deceived. And then one last thing, I'll just read it. Jude's last word on the problem of corruption in the church is preserved in a memorable benediction. Only God can keep us from error and bring us to himself. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Ultimately, God is the one we have to rely on to preserve us and to keep us. All right? Any questions? No? Are we good? I'm not even going to give you my outline right now because it'll take too long to explain it, right? There's the overview of the book. There's the book of Jude. Now you're in. So, what is the book of Jude? A letter written to protect the church from negative influences that come from inside the church. And what's his way of protecting it? Exposing the false and reminding them of different things. Well, I won't have you list each thing. Reminding them of different things. And the reminders are really the words of the apostles, the past judgments that have occurred, and the fact that God is the one who's going to preserve and keep us. You could break it down that way, but that's okay. All right, there's the book of Jude. Nothing has changed. Make sure you understand, nothing's changed in all of this time. There's still false teachers in the church. There always will be. And we're all still the problem. It's never changed. So we need to learn how he deals with it and then what we can learn from it. Okay, let's stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Very important book. I hope as we work through it over the next couple of months or ever how long it takes that we learn much from it and that we learn to see the problem in us before we see the problem in anyone else. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...